Chapter Sixteen of the Master of Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Master of Mysteries by Jellet Burgess. Chapter Sixteen The Count's Comedy. Engrossed in his own thoughts, a young man waited in the great dim studio of Astro the Seer, nervously punching the magnificent Turkish rug with a ferrule of his cane. He was young, well-groomed, and smartly dressed, apparently well-bred. It was evident that he was more worried than impatient. He looked up with a scowl, as Astro, dressed in his red silk robe, wearing his turban with the moonstone clasp, leisurely entered the apartment. For a moment, the young man gazed at the seer as if to estimate the man's caliber and character. Astro said nothing, but bowing gravely, took his seat on the big couch and lazily lighted his water-pipe, waiting for his visitor to speak. "'I have come to you,' the young man said finally, "'although I must confess I don't quite believe in occult powers, because I have an idea that you must know considerable about human nature.' You certainly see plenty of it. Astro bowed again, and a faint smile curled his lips. I have also heard you called the Master of Mysteries, the young man continued. Again Astro bowed. The young man rose and handed the palmist a card. It read, Mr. John Wallington Shaw. Astro looked at it and tossed it on the table. I suppose you know who I am? Astro again bowed. It's a part of your business, I suppose. You may have read in the papers, also, of my sister's engagement to Count Dampleri. The same sober gesture of assent from the palmist. Shaw sat down again, shoved his hands into his pockets, crossed his legs, and leaned back. Mr. Astro, he said, I have come here on a queer errand. I suppose you see many strange things in your profession and it seemed to me that your experience would enable you to give me some help. What I want you to do first is to believe something that's nearly incredible. My dear sir, said Astro, speaking at last, nothing is incredible. From what I know of life, the more impossible it seems to be, the more probable it is. For that matter, one has only to read the papers. But seriously... If I can help you in any way, I shall be glad to do so. Shaw now took a gold cigarette case from his pocket, selected a cigarette, knocked it against his fist, and struck a match. After the first long inhalation, he remarked, You'll promise, then, to believe the extraordinary story I tell you? Uh, Mr. Shaw, Astro replied, It's easy enough for me to perceive that you are a gentleman. I expect an equal amount of perception from you. At any rate, I hardly see why you should come here to tell me an untruth. But what I mean is, I'm afraid you'll think I'm, well, a bit crazy. It's simply too ridiculous. Why, I wouldn't believe it myself, hardly. Let's have it. You have really excited my curiosity. Astro folded his arms and looked at Shaw with sharp eyes. You certainly show no symptoms of derangement yet. Shaw gave a nervous laugh. 
Oh, it isn't I, it's my sister. That's why it is so hard to tell. I assume, of course, that this confession will be kept confidential. Not only that, but I expect you to help me out, for an ample consideration. Astro bowed. I have secrets enough in this head of mine to destroy a dozen of the first families of New York, he said a little dryly. Shaw shrugged his shoulders. Very well. I'll waste no more time. You'll see how useless it is to appeal to the police or even to my lawyer. But first, have you heard of the robbery of Mrs. Landor's jewels? Oh, yes. The thief, I believe, has never been discovered. It always seemed to me curious that no reward for their return had ever been offered. But what have they to do with your sister? Shaw gazed up at the ceiling, then down at the floor. Really, I'm, I'm almost ashamed to tell the story. It's so confoundedly absurd. We are Westerners, you know, of good, sound, and healthy stock. We're as sane as Shakespeare. No trace of brainstorms or paranoia in our family. The thing hasn't gone far, but it will be talked about if I can't stop it. That is, if you can't. I don't know what to do. I'm up a tree. You've got to get hold of whoever's responsible for this thing and tie them up some way. It's a serious problem for us. Astro put his fingers to his lips and yawned. Shaw took the hint and proceeded abruptly. Mrs. Landor's jewels are at my house, a whole teapot full of them. Ah, you know the thief, then. No, I don't. Nor do I know what the deuce I'm to do with the loot. One thing you are to do is to return it. And be accused of the theft myself? Oh, that wouldn't need to follow. They have to be sent back somehow. I don't want my sister to be accused of kleptomania. The other thing is quite bad enough. The idea of a gorilla in a top hat and all that. It would make a pretty scandal if it was found out. I can fancy how people would talk. We have a great many friends, you know. He smiled cynically at the word. She is innocent, I presume, then, said Astro. But what about the gorilla? Oh, there's no use in beating about the bush any longer, said Shaw. Only, you see, I wanted to make sure of you before I trusted you with the secret. I'll go ahead with it, and if you call it a cock-and-bull story, I don't see that I can blame you. You see, it was this way. We were down at our country place in Lakeside, a big, rambling old house with a veranda all around it, and long French windows opening out on it. My sister's room has a little balcony. It's on the second floor. She had gone upstairs to dress for dinner. I was in my own room a little way down the hall, and my door was closed at the time. We had a lot of company down for the weekend. It was ten days ago. Who were there? Oh, the Count, of course, and his valet, and the churches. You know, Simeon Church and his wife, the Radell girls, and two or three others. I'll give you a list later, if you like. All right, go ahead. It happened, as I say, just before dinner, about half-past seven. It was quite dark. We don't light up much outside. There was nothing going on at that time. Well, I heard her door open, and then she was pounding on mine, and she called out, John, John, come here quick. I opened the door, half-dressed as I was, 
and she was in a deuce of a funk. She grabbed me by the arm and pulled me down the hall and shut her door. And then she said, Oh, what shall I do? I said, What's the matter, Ethel? Have you been robbed? She was nearly fainting, and I thought she would drop before she could speak. But finally I got it out of her, and her story was a wonder, and that's a fact. Shaw, in his excitement, rose and gesticulated. She had sent her maid out of the room for something, and had her back to the French windows, and was stooping to pick up a comb when she heard the sash open, and she looked round in a fright. There, standing right in front of her, was a big black gorilla, bowing to her. Hmm. Astro concealed his amusement. Wait. I made her tell me the story half a dozen times, and it was the same each time. The thing had on a silk hat, and a Peter Pan collar, a red necktie, and white kid gloves, and pearl-gray spats buttoned around its knees. Astro could control his mirth no longer, and his grave demeanor exploded in a gust of hilarity. Shaw, despite his anxiety, had to join the laugh. What do you think of that for a fairy tale? But that's not half. This baboon... You said gorilla before. Well, gorilla, then. It doesn't matter in a nightmare like that. He held a china soup plate in one hand, and in the other, a black bag, a cloth bag. By Jove, that much I can swear to myself. I've seen it. Well, the chimpanzee thing... I thought it was a baboon. How the blazes do I know? I wasn't there, and if I had been, I shouldn't have known the difference. It may have been a monkey or an anthropod ape, for all I know. Anyway, it set the soup plate down on the dressing table, and tipped its hat, and said, Miss Ethel Shaw, I believe. Ah, said Astro, now we're getting warmer. Warm? He's made it hot enough for poor Ethel, I can tell you. Then, without waiting for an answer, Ethel was out of her wits by this time, though she half suspected a practical joke, too. The orangutan, or monkey, Astro interjected, smiling. Yes, or Gibbon, perhaps, held out the bag to her. It said, From your friends and well-wishers in the lunatic asylum. Then it did a graceful two-step over to the window, recited x squared plus 2xy plus y squared, and vanished on to the balcony. My sister was so frightened that she dropped the bag and, bing, out dropped Mrs. Landor's pearls and brooches and rings and things all over the floor. Now I ask you, what kind of a story is that to get all around town? He stared at the Master of Mysteries gloomily. Well, it certainly would add to the gaiety of nations, Astro remarked quietly, but it looks like a pretty slim case if your sister had to rely on it for a defense. We'd be laughed out of court, Shaw said. Did your sister give you any further description of the creature, anything that could identify the masquerader? Why, she said he was a little knock-kneed, she thought, but that might have been on account of the spats. He grinned sadly in spite of himself. Oh, I forgot. By Jove, yes. His breath smelled of garlic, and he wore automobile goggles. This was too much for Astro. It was some time before he could take the thing seriously. Shaw waited patiently until the palmist stopped laughing. I knew you'd think I was a blanked fool, he said mournfully. 
but it's no joke to the Shaw family, I assure you. Anybody would say Ethel was crazy. I did myself the very first time she told me this yarn. I said, Ethel, you're foolish. But there was the stuff to prove it. Then she began to cry. The worst of it is, the Count is absolutely convinced that Ethel is mad. As soon as we had dressed and gone down to dinner, Ethel told the story to the whole crowd. Of course, we consider Dampleri already as virtually a member of the family, and the others are old friends. Why, their friendship will be tested all right enough. The Count looked shocked and changed the subject pointedly, as if the thing was suspicious. It was perfectly evident that he discredited my sister. It made me foam at the mouth, but what could I do? What can we do now? Ethel, of course, persisted in her story, and the Count has grown cooler and cooler ever since. I'm afraid he'll talk. We can keep the others quiet easily enough. They have skeletons of their own to hide. What do you make of it, anyhow? Is there any way out? Astro puffed at his water pipe for a few moments in silence as he thought. The smoke, rising in a blue swaying curve, writhed in a faint arabesque against the velvet hangings of the walls. Shaw had begun punching holes in the rug with his cane again. From the portieres leading to the reception room, where Valeska, Astro's pretty assistant, sat, pretending to work, came a silvery chime of bells as the tall clock struck four. It had begun to grow a little dark. Astro pressed a switch and lighted an electric lamp depending from the ceiling. Instantly the walls glittered with points of light from the embroideries, the weapons, the golden carvings, and other decorations. "'What is your father worth?' the palmist asked. Shaw seemed to awaken from a daze. "'If you had asked me two weeks ago, I'd have said, roughly, four million or possibly five. But this recent deal in lead has hit him hard.' His shrinkage is nearly seventy-five percent, I suppose. He was almost ruined, in fact. But if you're in doubt as to your fee, why, that'll be all right. It's worth five thousand dollars to us to have the matter settled. We'd have to pay that in blackmail, I suppose. If you can think of any way to return the jewels, and no questions asked, and head off this insanity charge, the money's yours. Has any dowry been settled on Count Dampleri? Shaw blushed faintly. Oh, I'll say, he began. I'm aware that it's a continental practice, that's all, Astro said suavely. It is inevitable with an international marriage, isn't it? Yes. I fought against it as hard as I could. But Ethel can make the governor do anything she likes. Besides, my mother was set on the match, you know, and she helped arrange all that. They do it through lawyers, you know. It isn't quite so crude as it sounds, but it's bad enough. Yes, we arranged to buy the title for Ethel, I suppose. He kept his eyes on the rug in some embarrassment. There was a trace of anger in his tone. It was evident that the whole affair did not please him in any way. Very well. I'll undertake the commission, delicate as it is, Astro said, rising. I'd like to have the jewels delivered here sometime next week. You had best bring them yourself. I wish also you'd find out just when the Count Dampleri arrived in America, and by what boat. I suppose you can tell me the day and hour of your sister's birth? Shaw wheeled round on him. Oh, come now, he protested. I came to you because you know or ought to know most of the weaknesses of human nature. 
but if you think I take any stock in astrology or occultism... What was the date, did you say? Astro's voice was hard. October 14, 1885. 9 a.m., I believe. Shaw scowled. My dear Mr. Shaw, said Astro, if you give me this commission, you must let me do it my own way. It won't matter to you, I should think, how I do it. You are, I presume, an agnostic. Very good. I am a fatalist. Go to a detective or a doctor if you prefer modern science. I prefer the ancient lore. I came to you because you've done harder things than this, Shaw said to placate the independent seer. Go ahead with your cusps and nativities if you like. Only get us out of this fearful mess as safely and quickly as you can. I hope to see you on Monday, said Astro, bowing with dignity. John Wallington Shaw left the room. As soon as he had departed, Valeska entered, laughing, the dimple showing in her cheeks and chin. Astro's pose had gone. He threw off his robe and turban. Did you hear the uncouth history? he asked. Valeska nodded. Of all things, can it be true? Easily. Simple as milk. And at the same time, one of the cleverest schemes I ever heard of. It's all straight, that is, all except the jewels. That we'll have to investigate. But I don't understand it at all, Valeska pouted. Have you happened to hear that Count Dampleri has been paying rather too marked attention, for an engaged man, to Miss Belle Miller, the lady whom the crude wits of the four hundred have dubbed the Bay Mare? I knew she was in here one day for a reading, and was much interested in my prediction that she was to marry a titled foreigner. I heard the gossip at the Lorsons the day I went to that tea. I never forget items of that sort. They are more important than horoscopes. I think I have a glimmer of light now, said Boleska. The bay mare is an heiress, isn't she? Rather. Old man Miller owns half of Buffalo. And Shaw is on the verge of failure. And the Count wants a good excuse to transfer his affections and his hopes of a permanent income. What better escape than to impute insanity to Miss Ethel Shaw? I say it's a merry scheme. Valeska frowned. It's horribly cruel. Well, it's infamously Italian, if you like. Fancy one of the Borgias reappearing to grace the twentieth century. But you can't deny it is cleverly worked out. Insanity is one of the best reasons for not marrying, even for a fortune-hunting foreigner. Everyone will pity him, instead of blaming him, and he'll walk out of the Shaw family into the arms of the Millers. He only wanted to be well off with the old love before he was on with the new. But I'll forgive him anything for the sake of the automobile goggles. And the Peter Pan collar, cried Valeska, laughing. Couldn't you hear me giggling in the closet? The Landor jewels, though, said Astro thoughtfully. If it wasn't for them, one might suspect that Miss Ethel had taken an overdose of headache powder. Acetonalid does affect the brain, you know. The question is, who played the gorilla? Ah, an Italian, I'm afraid. If you'll pardon the pun, I think that garlic puts us on the scent. As I see it, it's a case where our friend McGraw can help us out. I'll try him. There'll be no particular credit in it for him, but, what's just as good, 
there'll be money. From an interview with his friend, the police lieutenant, that night Astro found out that no one had been suspected of the robbery of Miss Landor's jewels strongly enough to warrant arrest. Ethel Shaw and her fiancé were both present at the Landor reception held on the night when the jewels were stolen. A charge of kleptomania might, therefore, be reasonably preferred against her. As young Shaw had said, such an accusation, coupled with her testimony as to the method by which she obtained the jewels, would deal a serious blow to the Shaw's social aspirations. McGraw had too often profited by Astro's assistance in puzzling cases not to do his best to help the palmist, but nothing was known by the police about the Count or his valet. It was found, however, that, on his passage across the Atlantic in the Penumbria, Count Dempleri had taken no servant. This, of itself, was of sufficient importance for Astro to request McGraw to look up the man and furnish a description of him and his circumstances. This, in a few days, revealed the fact that the valet had a dubious reputation, and it was suspected that he had been in prison. McGraw himself was not sure at first, but subsequently a brother officer familiar with the Italian quarter of New York positively identified him as Neasy Tim, who had done time for second-story work, and was so called among his pals on account of his knock knees. It did not take the officer long after that to ascertain through the detective force that Tim had attended the Landor reception as Count Dampleri's valet. The line of evidence was now direct. Tim had welded the most important link of it himself by appearing as the bearer of the stolen jewels. His boldness was accounted for, of course, by the fact that he relied on his ludicrous appearance to make Miss Shaw's story incredible, at the same time preventing any identification of himself. In all this it was impossible not to suspect the Count of being an accessory, if, indeed, he did not plan the whole thing. But why had the thief been willing to surrender such valuable booty? If the Count were merely after money, here was a treasure in the hands of his accomplice. The answer was an easy one for Astro to solve, when Shaw produced the black bag full of Miss Landor's heirlooms. The jewels were all false. Astro's critical eyes needed but one careful look at them. They were marvelous imitations, but of no possible use to anyone except the owner who would never be suspected of having hypothecated her celebrated gems. It was evident now why Mrs. Landor, the respectable, aristocratic Mrs. Lemure Landor, of the Landor jewels, had never offered a reward for their capture. Astro, cynical as he was, familiar as he was with the many hypocrisies of the upper ten of the town, could not help laughing when he held the famous Landor Tierra up to Valeska's envious view. "'I'll never believe in anybody or anything again,' she exclaimed. "'Did you tell Mr. Shaw?' "'Not after his remarks on my profession,' said Astro, with a decided shake of his head. "'That's the time he did himself out of a hearty laugh at Mrs. Landor's expense.' In any case, I don't believe in ever telling any more than is necessary. The Count is an ordinary crook, then? I doubt that. Nor is he even an ordinary Count. He's a clever bourgeois Frenchman. I have talked with him, and no. I imagine that he picked up this fellow Tim to help him play the part, and found out afterwards what he was, and used him. But that doesn't matter. We have them now on the hip. And how are you going to fix him? From what I hear, he is more attentive than ever to the Bay Mare, and people are talking about it. That doesn't matter. If Miss Ethel can get rid of him without his telling that ridiculous story, 
she'll undoubtedly call it good riddance to bad rubbish. And I will fix that. How? My dear, if you walk up and down on 8th Avenue, between 37th and 38th Streets, from 12 until half-past tomorrow night, you'll see. And, he continues, smiling to himself, I think it will be worth your attendance. I think we might ask Shaw to escort you, if he's willing to disguise himself a little, enough so that the Count won't recognize him. I shall be there, said Valeska. I promise a comedy, said Astro. By the way, it may interest you to know that I have rented a room at number 573 8th Avenue. Indeed, said Valeska, raising her brows. I imagine from your tone that I'm not to ask you any questions. But I would like to know if you are through with McGraw. No, indeed. McGraw is to figure as the deus ex machina. Also, he is to earn $2,000. One he will collect from me, and one from Mrs. Landor, who will be very glad to pay, I imagine, if he acts strictly in a private capacity. In other words, it is not particularly to Mrs. Landor's interest for the public to know that she has sold her jewels and wears paste. I begin dimly to comprehend now, Valeska mused. You will emulate the Mikado of Japan and let the punishment fit the crime. Astro replied, My dear, in the mutual interaction of telepathic vibrations, one neutralizes the other. Two loud sounds can be made to produce a silence. Salah. Tara akalada mahatara. Abracadabra mahatara. Boom, D.A., Valeska added gaily. Precisely. And speaking of nonsense, I didn't ask you to get me a pair of white duck trousers and a yellow-striped blazer and an old woman's wig and a green umbrella and a white top hat, did I? He looked thoughtfully at his fingernails. No, you didn't, she replied briskly. Nor a bottle of soothing syrup, nor a tombstone. Nevertheless, you will do this tomorrow morning and have them sent to number 573 8th Avenue. I agree, if you'll only let me add some rubber boots. Well, as a special favor, yes. Now run along, and I'll get to work. Oh, Tim was arrested today on suspicion of having stolen the Landor jewels. Too bad, isn't it? He sat down, thereupon, to write a letter as follows. Commesso Chaglio Graviasimo Lei in un gran parerico. Venga a travmare matadel. Matadia mezzanotte sulla. Parte del no. 573 8th Avenue. Venga solo. Te. He showed it to Valeska and translated. Terrible mistake made. You are in great danger. Meet me Tuesday at midnight in the doorway of number 573 8th Avenue. Come alone. T roughly scrawled on brown paper and put into a plain but dirty envelope, the note was convincing. Tim, at any rate, would not be able to deny it for some time. It was not a message that the Count d'Amplary would dare ignore. The Count d'Amplary did not ignore it. Smart and aristocratic in appearance, though foreign-looking with his Parisian silk hat, his queer trousers, and his waxed and pointed mustache, he was prompt at the rendezvous. Valeska and John Wellington Shaw drifting slowly down the block, noticed him there, waiting in the dusky doorway, looking impatiently up and down, smoking a cigarette. The Count seemed to be a bit uneasy. He lighted one cigarette after another. 
the two spectators passed again, talking absorbingly to one another, but watching guardedly as they passed. At the 37th Street corner, they noticed a man standing, his back against a lamppost. A child would have known him to be a policeman in plain clothes. His burly figure, his bull neck, the very cut of his mustache proved it indubitably. He gave them a wink as they passed him. They crossed to the other side of the avenue and walked slowly. As they reached the far end of the block, they suddenly stopped. Valeska began to giggle, pointed, and excitedly watched the scene across the street. Shaw seized her arm and hurried her over to the crossing into the front doorway. The little drama was almost over. As they stopped, staring, a fantastic figure retreated, entered the door, and banged it behind him. They were laughing at the Count's discomfiture as McGraw came up. He took his cue like an actor, and walking up to the Count, grabbed him fiercely by the arm. "'Now, then,' he said fiercely, "'what you are doing here? What's that you got there?' He pointed to a black bag the Italian still held in his hand. "'Who are you, anyway?' said the Count angrily. "'What business of yours? Tell me that!' "'I'll show you.' And McGraw drew back his coat and displayed his badge. "'See here, now. What have you got in that bag at this time of night, hanging round in this doorway?' "'My God, I don't know myself!' the Count exclaimed. "'I'll see, then,' said McGraw and snatching it from him, he opened the bag and drew out a diamond tiara. "'You don't know!' he thundered. "'We'll see about that at the station-house. Come along with me.' The Count, seeing the jewels, seemed almost ready to faint with surprise and horror. "'But I am very innocent!' he wailed. "'I am the Count Dampleri. I live at the St. Regis. You shall see. Before heaven! I never knew what things were there. It was... give me... It was give me just now by... by... He paused, discomfited. Well, by whom? Was McGraw's inquiry. You will not believe. Nobody won't believe. It, it is too much. A mad woman should give me this bag just now this minute. What kind of a woman? Out with it. Oh, what shall I say? You, you will not believe. A woman like a man, with white pantaloon with a topper hat, a yellow jacket, with stripes like these. He made a pitiful gesture down the front of his coat. Ah, oh, go on, said McGraw. You expecting me to believe a pipe dream like that? That's the worst I ever heard, and I've heard some thin ones, too. But I tell the truth, I swear it. She have a green umbrella. Any more? Go as far as you like. McGraw's tone was affable. She wear big boots of legume, what you call it, Robert. McGraw towered over him now and calmly folded his arms. No blue whiskers or purple hat pins stuck in her face, was they? She wasn't chewing shavings or had red fire on her hands, I suppose. Lord, man, you've got no imagination at all. Why, I can dream up things that would make that old lady seem like a fashion plate. When I dope them out, they generally wear armor plate and glass gloves, at least. But I guess that'll be about all for you. I'm going to run you in. The Count, in despair, appealed to Valeska. But the lady and the gentleman, she sees the old woman, ask them. I speak of the truth to you. Valeska, smothering her laughter, did her best to speak calmly. We saw nothing at all, officer. The man must be intoxicated. Or crazy, Shaw put in wickedly. You see nothing? The Count ejaculated in amazement. Then he dropped in a dejected huddle nodding his head sillily. McGraw motioned to Valeska and nodded toward 37th Street. 
Well, I'll have to go, she said, smiling. You better be careful, officer. He may be dangerous. And so saying, she walked away with Shaw, who was too nearly hysterical with mirth to speak for a while. When he did, it was to say, Will you kindly inform Astro when you see him that I take back what I said about horoscopes and occultism? I am quite sure he will understand. She repeated the message next day, when she and Astro found themselves alone in the studio. Astro smiled. If they were all like John Wellington Shaw, he said, you and I wouldn't make much of a living, little girl. Then he added irrelevantly, I understand that the Count d'Amfleury is to sail on the Germanic next week. Ah, then McGraw let him off? All McGraw wanted was to get his thousand out of Mrs. Landor, and the less talk about it, the better. He telephoned me this morning to say that she gave him a very lively half-hour, but paid. And by the way, I wonder if Shaw told his sister Ethel how the matter was solved. He said he intended to, before he went to bed. Then we may consider the episode closed. Astro took down a volume of Immanuel Kant. Before he began his reading, he remarked casually, It was a narrow escape for all three. I don't know exactly which one to congratulate the most. I'd congratulate the old lady with the white duck trousers and the blazer, said Valeska. I think she had the merriest time of all. Yes, said Astro, his eyes twinkling. I think so myself. End of chapter 16 Recording by Todd